This、mm-hmm. is hell. Okie doke. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you?、Uh, I agreed to install a cat door downstairs for Mel.、Uh, you think that's the kind of thing you can do high or no?、Uh, no, because it's, you're going to be cutting through a metal door. So, you are going to need some sort of metal saw, and you are not going to be, want to be high. Well, now I have、doing. to change all my plans. I know, see. This week on This Is Hell, real estate, like most things in the United States, has a long history of blatant racism while reinforcing white privilege and supremacy. That racism led to unfair and unequal home loans with no risk to the lender, as these bad loans were guaranteed by the government. And those lousy loans were being used to move African Americans from relatively quality. Public housing into far worse homes in reaction to a manufactured housing crisis that was just as made up as the urban crisis that led to these racist practices. The borrower would then find themselves in, a dil- in dilapidated homes whose repair costs, let alone mortgage payment, were often outside the reach of many in the community, leading to large swaths of urban decay, all while inner city African Americans were paying more for their rundown homes and their Rundown neighborhoods, then white people were paying in the brand new suburbs. It's a truly ugly history, and we'll learn all about it when we have the return of Kianga Yamada Taylor, author of Race for Profit, which is a great title for a book, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership. Then we'll discuss that. This idea that sleep is a politically powerful form of dissent. Sleep resides in a space that is yet to be commodified by capitalism, which pisses off capitalists, leading them to demand to impose on all of us a lack of sleep. Want to know why you can't sleep? It's capitalism's fault, like everything else is. When the U.S. military started recognizing PTSD and its service members, they realized the disorder's impact on sleep. In studying sleep, the military introduced a variety of therapies that eventually, get this, led veterans into. Anti war activism like Chicago's amazing Vietnam Veterans Against the War, led by Barry Romo, a past guest on our show. Those veterans then became the pioneers of, you guessed it, safe spaces and trigger warnings. Okay, you didn't guess that? Because I never would have either. We'll find out everything about war and sleep when we speak with Franny Noodleman, author of Fighting Sleep. The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. Franny is professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at Carleton University in Ottawa, where she teaches U.S. culture and history. Later this week on tomorrow's show, we'll be talking to freelance journalist Jacqueline Kovarik, who will be reporting to us live from Cochabamba. Bolivia. Jacqueline wrote the recent story in The Nation Bolivia's anti indigenous backlash is growing. The ouster of President Evo Morales has reignited the country's long standing racism against its indigenous people. Jacqueline is a graduate of NYU's Center on Latin America and Caribbean Studies and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. She writes about social and political movements in both Peru and Bolivia. Finally, this week we'll be speaking with, as we were supposed to last week, but we had a power outage. Uh, CIA whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling, who wrote the book Unwanted Spy The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. And then, of course, we're going to have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorch, and we just don't know if that's happening tomorrow or Friday, so stay tuned in for that. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure.、Uh, it's Friday. Jeffy, not the hangover、oh, cure. Okay. The hangover cure is crumpets. 
In a May article at The Guardian headlined, Pickle Juice and Marmite, The 11 Best Hangover Cures by Pub Landlords, writer Gwendolyn Smith quotes Hannah Thurman, manager of the Fox and Goose Inn at Hebden Bridge, West Yorkshire, saying, There's nothing better than a crumpet with butter on it, if you're feeling a bit rough because they're nice and warm and sort of fluffy. They're also not really complex. They're just really easy to eat. Uh, Gwendolyn Smith gets crumpets. <laughs> That's exactly how I describe them. So that makes this week's hangover cure, crumpets. You are going to be shocked to learn this, Alex, but I've never had a crumpet. In fact, I've the only country I've traveled to outside of the United States is Canada, and I only got as far as Toronto from Detroit. Uh, so next year, I believe I will be having crumpets because I think, I think, I think I'm going to Scotland for a couple of weeks. I think. I don't know be my first time overseas and i'm pretty sure my passport's been flagged so we'll see if i'm going anywhere you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove us wrong this is hell i do not i do not consider myself a journalist nor is it my intention to play one on this radio show live stream podcast whatever this is however i do have some training in journalism kinda and that i have some freelance work i did some freelance work where I contributed to a website that reported on things to do in Chicago and worked for several years in a local TV newsroom. Not that I would really call either endeavor journalism. Oh, and I also wrote a couple of magazine articles. Again, none of that was really journalism. More than anything, they were reporting, which I distinguish from journalism. While others may not share this opinion of journalism, I hold it to a higher standard than what I call reporting. Journalism, in my estimation, is the creation of news stories, and I am certainly not creating any news stories while interviewing our guests here on This Is Hell. Those stories are created by our guests, and through our interviews, I hope to report the work of the people who appear on our show so we can all better understand their work and their writing. As a reporter, I've covered crime scenes, even murders, and what I was told to do at such horrible times is to get the who, what, when, where, why, and how, or as much of that as I could. So think of the interview that we do here on This Is Hell is a kind of a crime scene investigation where we try to piece together the brilliant topics of our guests or consider our interviews, if you want, as a, a crime scene because you think my interviewing style is criminal. I don't care. The point is to get the incredible information of our guests to you. Therefore, the questions I ask are written in a way that I hope, I hope, is the best possible way to understand the ideas of whoever's on the show. Again, not only so you understand them, but so I do too. My intent is to learn with you while you are learning about our guests and their compositions. That is my agenda, to learn and my desire. My intent is for me to learn and for you to learn as I do. This means that as we learn together, attain more information, realize different perspectives, and consider ideas we would never have examined in the past, our minds may change. The outcome of this learning process might mean that my and your opinions could be altered as we all become more and more enlightened by the people who are we are very grateful to have on our show. And changing your opinion, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. It's actually the right thing to do if you get new information that improves a point of view. When I write questions for the show that they may not at times reflect what my opinion is, but highlighting my opinion is not the point. The point is to craft questions that, I, that can best get us all to learn from people far smarter than me, people who have far more expertise than I do. I would never pretend to be an expert on the topics discussed on the show, although plenty have asked that I do just that. Before the Iraq war, I was asked to be on several panels to discuss the war here in Chicago. Every time I was contacted and I was requested to be on these panels, I would point the group forming the panel to 
people like Kathy Kelly of Voices for Concerned Nonviolence, as she had uh, been on dozens of times to discuss the Iraq War. And she was the expert that I knew. But whoever was promoting the event would say, no, 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 we want you because people listen to your show. You can promote the event on your show and more people will attend and get the anti-war message that was being featured here on This Is Hell. I would always turn down these uh, invitations because I think it's far more important to hear from the actual experts than for me to promote our show, co-opting others' work for my own fame and fortune just seems kind of gross. It happened again this week when I was invited to be on Press TV, the Iranian state-run media outlet. They wanted someone to be on air yesterday to discuss the yellow vest, gilet jaune, that movement in France. I again declined the invitation, although it could have led to our show getting more listeners in Iran, getting more notoriety. Hell, maybe some deep-pocketed Iranians would describe uh, would subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. See how I slipped in that plug? Pretty clever, right? Or maybe it could have led to Iranians buying our trucker caps or t-shirts or some other This Is Hell merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. See? Pretty clever again. I told the press TV producer to go to our site, search on yellow vests, and feel free to contact anyone who's been on to discuss the movement, like... Jacob Hamburger, Cole Stangler. In fact, Press TV did get in contact with both. Cole wrote me saying, thanks, Chuck. I'm very open to talking to lots of people, but Press TV crosses the line for me, especially with what's happening in Iran. And the very pro-government Press TV has voiced its opposition to the current protests against the sharp rise in gas prices. Yesterday, the government even committed what's being called the largest internet shutdown ever to control dissent. So even if I was an expert on the yellow vest, there's no way I was going on press TV. I am not an expert on the topics discussed on This Is Hell. Our guests are. They are the main event. Their work is what is the most important content on our show. This show is about our guests, not me, which reinforces our motto that this is not the media. This is hell. The media makes the story about themselves whenever it can to promote their brand, their image, get more eyes on them to generate more profits. We don't. That's why we're broke. What I can tell you about the writing of questions on This Is Hell is no animals were harmed during the making of This Is Hell. In fact, a feral cat has actually been treated very well as we allowed him into our office so he could sleep on the couch when it was very cold outside last week. Also, any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of the interviews on our show without the express written consent of Major League Baseball is Totally fine by me. Screw baseball. And any other use of this show or any pictures, descriptions, or accounts of it without the National Football League's consent is cool because the NFL is an awful, awful institution. We can also guarantee you that the guests you are about to hear are true and their names have not been changed to protect them from any innocence they may claim in doing their work. Many of the questions I ask are from the point of view of a devil's advocate or advocatus diaboli. Isn't that great? As it is known within the Roman Catholic Church, that is, a a promoter of Catholicism who is critical in in examining the life of and miracles claimed to be attributed to an individual nominated for sainthood. Yeah, I didn't know that was a Catholic thing either. And maybe that's because I was raised Catholic, because in my experience, Catholics don't really seem to know a hell of a lot about Catholicism, especially the ones who are born into it. The ones who convert to it, which actually happens, shocking, I know. They seem to know a lot about Catholicism, but 
Catholics who are born into it, not so much. It's like being a citizen here in the United States. If you're born into the citizenship, you don't really know much about being a citizen. But if you are trying to become a citizen in this country, you probably know a lot more than most of the people who are in this country. Certainly we have the utmost respect for our guests. Why the hell else would we have them on our show? But it is important to remember that there are those in our listening audience who may disagree with their opinions. Therefore, I have to guess what the doubters might be wondering and pose those inquiries to whoever we have on the show. That's the best way to learn about their work, especially to change minds like mine, who may have held previous misconceptions or never even thought about the topic or our guest's unique perspective. Unfortunately, this leads some listeners to believe that every one of my queries reflects my opinions, my view, my perspective. And while it's impossible to censor my opinion from the interviews, often I ask questions that do not reflect how I actually feel about an issue in order to become better informed myself and hopefully you as well. I know this may sound different from what you hear on other radio shows, live streams, podcasts, whatever, where the host is doing everything they can to be heard by as many people as possible, feeling they are the stars of their shows. They are the story, too. I am not the star of This Is Hell. I am not the story. This is not the Chuck Mertz show for a reason. Our guests are the stars. Our contributors and correspondents are the main attraction. I am just a mediator, a facilitator, a conduit for our guests to get their good words out to you and me. Sure, it hasn't been the greatest marketing strategy or business plan. I'm still very broke and deeply in debt. But what I do find attractive about journalism is its presumed ethics of doing whatever you can to contribute to a more informed citizenry who can make better decisions within democracy. I know, I know that democracy in this country has had its faults from jump. The very founding documents do not reflect democracy, but instead reinforce white supremacy, the power of the wealthy elites, and gender inequality, just to name a few of the very undemocratic aspects enshrined in the governance of the United States. But I am drawn to the journalistic ethic of informing the people, and I don't think you can really do that unless you are on a mission to also become informed yourself. I know that's not what the media does, but the news media industry is not journalism. It's an entertainment created by corporations who profit from advertisers while engaging in capitalism. So the likelihood of anyone in the news media industry to question capitalism or to consider what role capitalism plays in any of the shortcomings of our society is nil. In doing so, they would betray their masters, their lifeline, their bottom line. No, I'm not a journalist either, but I don't have the arrogant audacity to play one like every news anchor does on every major network and cable outlet every day. If anything, I'm an interviewer who wants to talk to people to try and figure out what the hell is happening in our world, which is what I hope any journalist is doing right now and I sincerely hope that you will continue to learn with me because this is not the media this is hell and this week real estate in the United States has a long history of racism reinforcing white privilege and supremacy then we'll find out all about the radical power of sleep and how it was unleashed by war tomorrow we'll find out what the ouster of Evo Morales means for the indigenous peoples of Bolivia and Friday we'll discuss the show trial of a CIA whistleblower that found our guest guilty without any evidence of his guilt and also on Friday a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from the United States where property has more rights than people. This is hell. 
Real estate is a racist industry that leads to unfair loans to African Americans on properties that are crumbling with absolutely no risk to the lender, causing a cycle of lending, repair, decay, foreclosure, only to repeat the same process over and over again as the industry profits. Here to help us understand the horrible racist history of real estate returning to This Is Hell. Kianga Yamada Taylor is author of the new book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kianga. Thanks so much. Very happy to be here and join you. <laughs> you can follow Kianga on Twitter at Kianga Yamada. You write the widespread access to home ownership across the United States in the aftermath of World War II cemented it as a fundamental feature of the cultural conceptions of citizenship and belonging. This was especially true for African Americans. Indeed, the very first civil rights bill to be enacted in 1886 tethered the right to purchase property to freedom and citizenship. And you continue this American particularity of property rights as an expression of citizenship was reinforced in the 1948 landmark Shelley v. Kramer decision that affirmed, quote, equality in the enjoyment of property rights was regarded as an essential precondition to the realization of other basic civil rights and liberties. Why the prioritization of property rights? How do property rights lead to other civil rights and liberties? Um, I think that you know, in a society such as, as ours, um, private property has been held up as a, a kind of gateway to autonomy and social liberty. And for some people, it has functioned that way. But private property and property ownership does not exist in a vacuum. And in this country where access to property to property, property ownership is mediated um, by is mediated by uh, the market. I think that that becomes uh, the troubles begin. Uh, the free market is um, held up as this kind of race blind, color neutral space that dictates um, how the market functions. But in reality. Um, you know, the market is us. And so the market, uh, all of the kinds of racial prejudice that uh, pulsate through our society, in which that has meant that uh, African-Americans haven't had the same access to uh, private property uh, as other people in this country. You write this unprecedented public-private partnership in the production of low-income housing tethered HUD and FHA to real estate brokers, mortgage bankers, and home builders. These partnerships were troubled from their inception because of the real estate industry's long history of racial discrimination against and demonization of African Americans as unfit owners and detrimental to property values. So the real estate industry had a history of racism. So the U.S. goes into a partnership with racist real estate and racist outcomes occur, which should not be surprising. To what extent can government policy change an industry from being racist from the get-go? Well, it really can't unless there is some commitment to do so. And so part, I mean, there, there are many tangled issues here. One is, you know, there there's the big, I don't know if people have seen this, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, there was big expose published in Newsday uh, newspaper, which is a Long Island daily, um, Long Island, New York. Uh, and so it came out to great fanfare a couple of days ago. 
um, that shows how real estate agents are uh, uh, engaged in discriminatory practices. This is an undercover newspaper investigation over a three-year period, and they found that 19% of the times Asian American prospective home buyers were discriminated against, and something like 30% of the time Latino uh, prospective homeowners were discriminated against, and 49% of the time, black homeowners were discriminated uh, against. You know, cause real estate operatives have uh, an interest in maintaining a exclusive white housing market, um, and you know, fitting other people in in other neighborhoods uh, uh, around that. And so, if you have these private sector actors. <clears throat> who are deeply invested in uh, segregation and racism because it actually builds their bottom line, um, then it's, you know, it's very difficult uh, for government who then goes into partnership with these uh, institutions and uh, agents and organizations to be able to effectively uh, police them. And why is it difficult to police them is because the federal government has outsourced its entire housing program to the private sector. And so when the federal government is utterly dependent um, on the private sector to produce all housing, then it has no other alternative. It has stripped itself from that alternative. The federal government doesn't uh, build, develop, or manage any housing. And so it is completely dependent on the private sector. And because of that relationship, it really makes it impossible for the federal government to effectively police it. And so that's why we have seen for 50 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act that the, the number one problem that the U.S. government has is a failure to enforce its own civil rights rules and regulations. Why doesn't it enforce it? Because it is dependent on the private sector to produce housing. And so really the way to get uh, from beneath this relationship means reassigning a predominant role in the production of housing, in the management and building uh, of housing to the public sector, to the public. Um, and without that, uh, we won't be able to escape this uh, dilemma. There has not been a single time in the entirety of the 20th century when real estate became one of the most powerful sections of uh, sectors of the U.S. economy that the real estate industry, whether it's brokers, builders, or bankers have not relied on racial discrimination to enhance its bottom line. And it's not just a historical relic. These are practices that continue to this very day, and they're able to continue because the federal government has no commitment to enforcing civil rights law. There were two things that I found odd about the coverage of the Newsday story. Not the Newsday story uh -huh. itself. The Newsday story was fantastic. The two things that I found really odd, well, one is because I was reading your book, that that would be breaking news, that finding out that there is racial discrimination within real estate would be breaking news. That shocked me. And then the second thing that shocked me is then you didn't see this breaking news on any of the networks, on any of the cable right. outlets. What does that tell you? about media coverage when it comes to racial discrimination, in particular in housing? Well, I think it's the first thing that you said that, oh, is that news? I mean, that that's just another day in the real estate industry. 
Um, and so in, in that sense, you know, I think this is a kind of cynical view that this this is just this is a regular uh, this is a regular practice that um, is taken for granted. And everyone knows it's taken. You know, everyone knows this. All you have to do is walk around a major metropolitan area, walk around, you know, any city, uh, major city, smaller city that that people live in around this country. And, you know, uh, that residential segregation still exists. And how do we get to residential segregation? Well, it begins with the real estate broker. Um, and so I think that there's a kind of uh, expectation or knowledge about that in ways that would prevent, um, you know, the, the mainstream media from uh, reporting on this as a, as a consequential uh, event, because I think everyone just assumes that this is what uh, that this is what goes on and that it's actually not breaking news. And so, you know, why carve out any space or time to actually talk about it? Did giving black Americans access to home ownership then, did it simply open up a new way for white profiteers to exploit black Americans? And was that intentional? Was that its point? So this is, you know, a big question that I tried to uh, talk about um, with the book, which is how does uh, the end of redlining, which happens in the late 1960s, 1967 and 1968, um, just give way to more uh, and different kinds of exploitative real estate um, practices? And I try to take up this question because I think most of us are conditioned to believe that the way that you solve problems of exclusion uh, is simply by turning to inclusion. I mean, that is the narrative um, around race in this country uh, when it comes to civil rights, that black people have been denied basic rights. They have been excluded from um, the rights and governing institutions of this country. And the way that we repair that uh, is to include them. And the problem with this is that it doesn't actually take into uh, account what are you being included into. Uh, it takes as an assumption that the problems that we face in this country are not systemic, um, that they are simply questions of access, that essentially the U.S. is a sound society, um, that its, its mechanisms work, uh, its institutions work, um, and that all that is lacking is people's access to those institutions and mechanisms. And so I'm looking at um, somewhat narrowly the question of housing and how that fits into uh, the equation. And the question of housing is a very uh, critical one. In the 60s, it produced landmark legislation with the Fair Housing Act in 1968. Uh, it also uh, produced a landmark Supreme Court case that most people don't know about, Jones versus Mayer in 1968. So housing was not inconsequential as a place where people believed if black people could just be included into this apparatus, then it could produce the same kinds of outcomes that uh, housing availability, home ownership did uh, for white people um, in the 1940s and 50s. And so the problem, though, is that simply changing the law did not change the previous decades, several decades, uh, patterns of racial discrimination, a period in which the ideas about 
blacks as neighbors, as homeowners, um, potentially homeowners as as residents in uh, uh, cities um, was not deeply distorted by uh, discriminatory um, practices that uh, left African-Americans segregated, isolated in urban communities where the housing was often uh, dilapidated and substandard, not because of black people there, but because the housing was old. It wasn't a new housing that had become available for white people um, in the suburbs. And so by the time that the practices of redlining by the federal government are banned by law, um, the conditions of black communities that had been built up over time because of segregation uh, become the new evidence um, to welcome them into conventional real estate practices, but by other discriminatory um, means, meaning that if you lived in a neighborhood that uh, looked risky as a place to risk in terms of, you know, is this a good investment? Will a house appreciate over time? Uh, should someone who lives in a neighborhood like this, do we trust that they will repay uh, a loan? Um, and so the decisions around that uh, are dictated by the conditions in those neighborhoods, which lead uh, conventional real estate uh, practices to uh, charging people more for loans or offering different kinds of uh, loans that incorporate these ideas uh, of risk, which in the end leave African-Americans still vulnerable um, to predatory practices. And so just changing the law without repairing the damage that had been done his historically um, to create those inequalities in the first place only meant that black people would now be vulnerable uh, to new kinds of discriminatory practices um, as, as opposed to what had happened previously. You write the paucity of oversight in the housing market deeply ingrained with the belief that the black population needed to be contained or segregated to preserve property values for white homeowners, combined with unprecedented federal dollars and a mandate to produce more units of housing than ever in history, was a recipe for nefarious business practices. Was this process then, more than anything, simply about maintaining white supremacy and privilege? Um, I think, no. I mean, I think the overall... Uh, sometimes it's difficult to um, ferret that out. I think the overall objective um, was profiteering and to make as much money as uh, as possible and leveraging the influence and uh, authority of the federal government um, to do so. Um, and so, of course, by way of that, um, the, the structures of white supremacy are uh, reinforced. The uh, white, uh, exclusive white housing market um, becomes even more exclusive and more valuable. Uh, and the perceptions of uh, black housing and black neighborhoods uh, deteriorates greatly, which, of course, also um, adds to the value of uh, white neighborhoods. The further that they are from black people, um, and the perceived dysfunctional black city, uh, the more these homes grow um, in value. And so I think this is the, the function uh, of real estate. If we think about the, the objective of real estate is to buy low and sell high, um, you know, that they are able to uh, kind of wield that dynamic and attach it 
to uh, concepts of race in our society um, that essentially then reinforce racial segregation um, and the reinforcement of racial segregation uh, obviously then reinforces uh, racial stereotypes and misconceptions and distortions um, about uh, African-Americans, many of which uh, these distorted ideas about black people are rooted in um, the conditions that African-Americans are living in uh, throughout the course of the, the 20th century. And those conditions um, are have a great deal to do with the practices of uh, real estate, um, which for most of the 20th century worked to reinforce the color line um, in, in metropolitan areas, uh, dividing cities uh, from suburbs, and then even within cities, dividing uh, black neighborhoods from uh, other uh, neighborhoods in a city. After, you write that after several decades of refusing to guarantee the mortgages of African Americans or those who lived in close proximity to them, the FHA charted a new path. With the passage of the 1968 Housing and Urban Development Act, HUD Act, new provisions were made to encourage low-income homeownership. After years of partisan jousting over the creation, placement, and management of public housing programs, President Lyndon Johnson t- turned to the market to solve the perennial housing crisis that had plagued American cities since at least World War II. To what extent was there a housing crisis? Oh, there was, a, there was an intense um, housing shortage, you know, which in the lives of regular people who are in search of housing uh, constitutes a crisis. Um, the, the problem, it, you know, and I've, I've criticized this use of uh, crisis, um, in terms of talking about the dearth of safe, sound, and affordable housing, um, and that we really need to think of it more as a chronic problem. Crisis indicates that this is a breach from the norm, um, but the norm has actually been housing shortages. And so I think that, again, the private sector has consistently flexed its influence in housing policy um, since housing policy became uh, came into existence in the 1930s um, with a single refrain of stopping the federal government from competing against the private sector. So private sector real estate forces undermine public housing because they don't want government-backed housing to to compete with the private rental or uh, ownership market. Um, The the private sector uh, has consistently kind of flexed its influence in public policy uh, in ways uh, to bend those policies uh, that in ways that benefit the, 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 the private sector. And so this is part of why um, there never seems to be any kind of plan uh, around housing and how we end up with this vast mismatch between housing need and demand and the uh, existence of uh, housing that is affordable uh, for people. Um, housing is one of those things that, you know, when it has a price on it, People have to pay anything because you have to have shelter uh, to survive as a species. Um, And that means that there's a wild disconnect between uh, the price and cost of housing uh, and what people can actually afford but are made to pay for uh, 
um, anyway. And so, if anything, that's the crisis. But a function of uh, housing under capitalism, it's not a breach with the norm. It is the norm. You write, advocates proselytize the virtues of ownership, including the creation of stakeholders within otherwise distressed communities. They suggested that the efficiency and speed with which business could produce housing would finally end the perennial scarcity of good urban housing. Private property then not only could solve the housing crisis, but was presented more broadly as a palliative to an urban crisis that had metastasized into annual riots and rebellions throughout the 1960s. Was there an urban crisis that needed to be addressed? Well, urban, there are many different iterations of urban crisis. What does that mean? In the the early uh, 1960s or the late 1950s, it was uh, urban uh, congestion, it was slum housing, um, and it was the kind of fodder for expanding urban renewal practices. Um, by the middle 60s, urban crisis comes to mean uh, the black rebellions that are sweeping uh, across the country. You know, by the end of 1968, uh, more than 500,000 African Americans have participated in urban uprisings of one sort um, or another. And so, you know, by the 1970s, urban crisis takes on yet uh, a new meaning, um, which has to do with uh, perceptions of concentrated poverty, joblessness, um, and a, a general kind of uh, blight and um, uh, broken down static condition um, in cities. There was what could be uh, construed as, as crisis, but... Uh, turning people who lived in those areas of uh, distress and that they were distressed because of decades of disinvestment, because of decades of uh, racist um, public policy, uh, was not to then turn everyone into an individual uh, homeowner within that context. Uh, it was to uh, infuse massive amounts of investment and capital um, into those areas uh, that could lead to uh, both job development and um, also community development to build new housing, to build uh, safe, sound, and affordable housing. I mean, those were uh, the types of programs that were needed to intervene in places that that were in a, uh, a state of crisis. But that crisis was caused by the actions of the federal government itself. You write that in the strange mathematics of racial real estate, black people paid more for the inferior condition of their housing. They refer to this costly differential as a race tax. And you've touched on this mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit already, but how do black Americans pay more for worse housing than the nice housing that, that relatively white people have? It's because of segregation, that when you have a captured market, um, then it forces the price of black housing up and the quality of black housing uh, down. Um, and so this book is about the late 1960s and early um, 70s. And, you know, people should be clear that during this time period, um, there is still an incredible amount of vitriol and violence directed at African-Americans who dared uh, to breach the color line um, in cities, uh, mostly in in suburban areas um, during that time. So I, you know, I write about uh, African-Americans in Hempstead, Long Island, 
um, who are firebombed, um, who receive a pipe bomb in their in their home. Um, black people who try to in Cleveland who try to move into the uh, Shaker Heights sub suburb who are bombed. Um, and so, you know, the the bounds of segregation are not just uh, hypothetical or, you know, oh, do you want a black neighbor or not? Um, these are violently uh, maintained uh, racial boundaries. Um, and when you have that kind of boundary, when landlords and property owners know that African-Americans are largely a captured audience, captured market, when the federal government has absolutely no serious commitment to enforcing its own rules and regulations concerning civil rights law, um, then you end up paying more for uh, worse conditions um, in, in housing. And when we talk about enforcement, it's important to know that, you know, as early as 1969, HUD is empowered to create a civil rights division um, in housing, and they do so. And they are given a budget by the U.S. Congress for $6 million, $5 million of which is to go to um, staffing, which leaves $1 million for 120 employees uh, to weed out all acts and complaints of racial discrimination in housing in the United States. So on its face, there's no commitment to enforcing uh, the law regarding uh, racial discrimination, even understanding the history of what had the only reason the U.S. got a fair housing bill is because Martin Luther King was murdered. So fair housing had cycled through Congress in 1965, in 1966, in 1967, and it was on its way through another cycle in 1968 when Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated and riots broke out in uh, you know hundreds of cities around the country, and it was only because of that that seven days later, uh, Lyndon Johnson was finally able to sign uh, fair housing into law. And even then, it was done with almost no enforcement, serious enforcement power. So it relied on what it called uh, mediation and conciliation. And Actually, what you need, what kinds of enforcement powers that are necessary are behavior-altering punishment for engaging in illegal racist practices, business-breaking fines, right? This is the only way you will actually get the attention of the private sector and transform uh, its behavior. But why don't we do that? Because that's, that's not rocket science, that's not a complicated thing to come up with. It's because it, the U.S. government has no commitment to that. They understand the white people primarily who are in charge of this dis decision making understand how sacrosanct property values are. And property values in this country are contingent on the isolation of black people and the uh, isolation of white people. And so because of that, calculus and dynamic. That's why we don't get enforcement. Not because no one has ever thought of this before. 
So you also point out that given the dueling objectives of different sectors within the real estate industry, federal regulators in HUD, newly empowered to this role by the Fair Housing Act, as the Civil Rights Act of 1968 came to be known, would have to take responsibility for implementing the new legislation in fair and equitable ways. By 1968, though, the federal and local governments had a poor record of enforcing the fair housing laws already on the books. Did the real estate industry, did the market undo the victories of the Civil Rights Act? Do we not have the civil rights the Civil Rights Act promised because of the real estate industry and its pursuit of profits? Yes. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, I should say that it's not just, um, you know, private sector, bad, federal government, bad sometimes, good sometimes. It's not that. It's, to me, it's understanding the relationship between the two. Um, the, the constant efforts to bring the private sector together uh, with the public sector to create um, policies. And the reason I think this is because there is a very basic elemental uh, disconnect between those two. The public sector exists to protect the public's interest and the public's welfare. That's the reason why there is a uh, social welfare aspect to the public sector. It develops over time, certainly in the 1920s during the progressive era, uh, and then most clearly in the 1930s uh, with the New Deal. And so that's one set of objectives. For the private sector in real estate, their objective is to make money. And that's, that's not a pejorative statement. That's not a demeaning statement. That's just reality. It doesn't matter if you like it, don't like it, it's inconsequential. That's what it's there for. Buy low, sell high, make your money, turn a profit. Those two things, public welfare, public interest, make a profit, they don't work together. And so every time we try to jam the square peg of public policy and public interest into the, the square hole of the private sector's profiteering, it doesn't work. Um, and so that relationship to me is the problem because we keep combining the public and private sectors together to create policies that inevitably end up bending to the will of the private sector because the state slowly offshoots its responsibilities to the private sector as it divests itself from servicing that role. And that really, the relationship between the two is at the heart of the problem. We have been speaking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She is author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership. Kianga is assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, and she's also a columnist at Jacobin. She was on our show back in March of 2016 to talk about her previous book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And you can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, Kianga, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, which is where I think this one will lie. You quote historian Arnold Hirsch writing, the rise of second ghettos in the post-war era and the suburban boom were organically linked. You add a white housing market would have actually been unintelligible without its black counterpart. Both relied on the other to become legible. So, 
How responsible are white suburbs for dilapidated black neighborhoods? Is the reason black neighborhoods may be in a distressed state because white suburbs exist? More importantly, are white suburbanites complicit in racial discrimination in the real estate market simply by moving to the suburbs? So I will I will say that, yes, there it, all too often people have thought about these as dual and distinct uh, housing markets. And so I argue against that in this book and say that, no, they're actually intimately uh, connected in the same way that, you know, in a place like Chicago, where I lived for a long time, I used to reject the framework of, oh, we're in, we live in two cities. They're, Chicago is a tale of two cities. No, Chicago is about one city. Downtown the business district looks the way that it does because the west side and parts of the south side look the way that they do. Those two things are uh, connected. It's the same with the housing uh, market. The the, the uh, efforts of the federal government to you know restart the economy after the depression and the post-war era uh, by making everyone white people homeowners in suburban areas has a direct connection to the disinvestment uh, in African-American communities because they made that possible through the use of mortgage insurance and telling banks, lend money to everyone that you can. And if they go into foreclosure, we'll pay the debt off. So banks, no more risk for you. There's no risk at all. You do what you want to do on the condition that the homeowners are of a homogenous group and that the housing is new in the suburbs. So that meant white people in suburbs will get their housing subsidized by the government. If you live in the city, you will not. So there's a through line that connects the development of suburban areas to uh, the disinvestment um, and the underdevelopment uh, of black communities in cities. And so I think that the federal government, in collusion with the banking industry, uh, set this dynamic up. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same in terms of uh, what individual white homeowners decide to do. Uh, when you have these huge institutional forces setting uh, the groundwork, uh, creating the conditions within which we must, you know, choose to uh, live in one part or or the other, it's hard to reduce that down to individual uh, behavior. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't particularly think that uh, it's, it's necessary. But what I do think is important uh, to draw attention to is the collaborative relationship between uh, the public sector and the private sector uh, forced these decisions onto people. And of course, you know, in a country that has no social welfare state, in a country where your ability uh, to unleash social mobility uh, is determined by your individual efforts to personally accumulate wealth, with owning a house being the primary way to do that, then it adds an intensity to protecting property values because your home and whether or not you are the owner of a home that is a, an appreciating asset uh, determines much about the quality of your life um, in this country. And that is historically is what has made uh, white people hysterical uh, about protecting their housing values because it is their own personal welfare state uh, in a country where we have no welfare state and are really guaranteed nothing. Um, and so everything is on the individual uh, uh, to, to, to search out and finance um, in, their, in their lives. And this creates an enormous amount uh, of pressure 
pressure on protecting the, 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 the home at all costs. And so, you know, individuals didn't necessarily set this, this system up, uh, but the federal government and its private sector partners uh, did. And we need to disconnect those two if we're going to ever get serious about dealing with the incredible lack of available housing um, that is actually affordable for people in this country. And that is probably the best question from hell answer that we've had in a really long time. And I really do think, as you point out in your book over and over again, that we really need to disabuse ourselves of this ourselves of this idea that's often embraced in the mainstream media, that public-private partnerships are the best way to go because it's the best of both possible worlds. So we really need to stop thinking that way because the private part of it always makes it a very unequal relationship. Kianga, I really appreciate you being Absolutely. back on our show. And uh, you have an open invitation to be on our show whenever you want. So please, we will stay in contact with you and annoy you for the rest of your life. I hope you enjoy all of the interview requests that we send you. <laughs> all right, take care. Thank uh, you so much. I definitely... All right, and get get over, okay. that, get over that cold. Get over that cold. I know, I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> all right, take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Sleep is a radical thing to do. That's how screwed up capitalism is. Sleep isn't commodified yet, and if it ain't commodified, capitalism gets all cranky. When sleep is used as a political tactic, it really pisses off the state, which immediately sends in the cops to break up the revolutionary act of sleeping. Just ask the activists who occupied Zuccotti Park about how violent the police can be when you use sleep as a tool of dissent. We'll find out how sleep became radicalized and learn about the soldiers who did it when we talk to Franny Noodleman, author of... Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. Franny is professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at Carleton University in Ottawa, where she teaches U.S. culture and history. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on Monday, November 18, 598 years ago yesterday in 1421. A heavy storm surge on the Dutch North Sea coast pounded against the dikes in the southern Netherlands and northern Flanders, finally causing the all-important seawalls to collapse in several places. The catastrophic breach allowed a torrent of seawater into the polders, polders, expanses of farmland that lay below sea level and which had been gradually reclaimed from the ocean by many generations of dam builders. Polders, who knew? The flood swept dozens of Dutch villages off the map, including some that had been rebuilt after another flood just 17 years earlier. So in 1404, the dikes broke and dozens of villages were swept away and they rebuilt in the exact same location and the exact same thing happened again. Either these were really, really poor Dutch people who had no choice but to live in areas threatened by floods or 15th century Dutch planning, not all that great. Historians estimated that between 2,000 and 10,000 people were killed. Now, Ronaldo writes all the historical stuff for Rotten History, and I put on all the snarky comments, but Ronaldo, if you think you're going to get the word of the week with polders, again, farmland reclaimed from the ocean, I have bad news for you. The word of the week is the word or words that I read in researching that week's guests that I did not know the definition. And Ronaldo, as you are not a guest and you are a staff member, I'm sorry the rules say you cannot offer the word of the week. My deepest and most sincere apologies, because polders is a damn good word. In Rotten History, November 18, 1949, 70 years ago, yesterday, look, it's this week in Rotten History, and yesterday was this week, so get off mine, Ronaldo's back. At a coal mine, oh, 
how I hate when coal mines show up in rotten history because this never ends well. On the other hand, have you ever heard good news about any coal mine ever? In Enugu, Nigeria, the local ethnic Igbo mine workers had gone on strike over back pay withheld by the British government mine owners and had, who had instituted a practice called casualization, which essentially amounted to cutting the workers' hours. And let's all hope that that doesn't catch on here in the States because casualization reeks of late capitalism. The workers had occupied the mine to prevent a lockout and colonial authorities were nervous because they feared that the strikers might resort to using explosives that were stored in the mine shafts. I wouldn't be too worried because miners occupying a mine are not all that likely to blow up mine shafts in the mines they happen to be occupying. Local police were called in along with ethnic Hosa troops from the north of Nigeria, who spoke a language not understood by the Igbo. So, coal mines, worker strike, dynamite, troops being sent in, poor communication. This should end well. After some tense negotiation, the striking mine workers finally agreed to allow the removal of explosives from the mine, but they refused to do the work themselves. Being on strike, that kind of makes sense. Tensions rose until a panicky British police captain named F.S. Philip, who spoke neither Igbo or Hosa, pulled his trigger and shot one miner in the mouth. What a dick. Captain Philip loudly ordered his men to open fire, and it became a massacre in which 21 miners were killed within a few minutes, including a few who were shot in the back as they tried to get away, which is an oh-so-British Empire thing to do as the British military committed so many crimes against humanity. They're impossible to count. Another 51 miners were wounded in the incident. Here on This Is Hell, we believe it is a public service to remind everyone how much the British Empire sucked, and it also makes uh, certain to never forget that the British monarchy, the media drools over, that far too many people here in the United States actually admire the living, breathing symbol of all of the war crimes of their genocidal empire. Sure, this happened three years before the uh, kraut who is queen today became queen, but like the entire monarchy, she has blood on her hands. This has been a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell. Finally, in rotten history on November 24th, 1248, 771 years ago, next Sunday. Look, I, look, I know it's this week in rotten history, and Sunday is next week. Got a problem with that? Email alex at thisishell.com, and Alex will forward all your complaints to Ronaldo. Late at night in the French Alps, as villages slept peacefully in the valley below, the massive northern face of Mont Grenier collapsed without warning, causing an avalanche that rained enough limestone and mud to bury at least five villages and caused death and destruction in several other villages nearby. Why are villages always getting destroyed in rotten history? If there's one thing I've learned from rotten history, it's that I never want to live in a village as they seem incredibly susceptible to disaster. Hell, I won't even go to the village of Skokie, which may be a village in name only, but it's still a village, and that scares the hell out of me. More than a thousand people were killed or injured in what remains one of the deadliest landslides in European history. The collapse left Mont Grenier the sheer vertical face, almost half a mile high. It's one of the tallest cliffs in France, and nowadays it's popular with enthusiasts of base jumping, who strap on parachutes, throw themselves off the cliff, and post GoPro videos of their exploits on YouTube. Which seems to be the very definition of whistling by the graveyard. If they only had GoPro cameras and YouTube in the 13th century France, maybe throwing yourself at a cemetery wouldn't be so much fun. That's Rotten History, and this 
is hell coming up veterans turn sleep into a radical anti-war act tomorrow we're talking about the impact of the coup overthrowing Evo Morales on the indigenous people of Bolivia and Friday we're discussing the show trial of a CIA whistleblower that found our guest guilty without any evidence of his guilt I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry Noam Chomsky called this is hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. Sleep is an act of dissent. Sleep, when used as a protest strategy, is immediately confronted by the state and the police. Sleeping under the stars of capitalism is a threat to capitalists, and they want none of it. But all we want, all veterans with PTSD want, is a good night's sleep. Here to tell us about the radical act of sleeping, Franny Noodleman is author of Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind, and the U.S. Military. Welcome to This Is Hell, Franny. Thank you, Chuck, for having me on the show. Franny is professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at Carleton University in Ottawa, where she teaches U.S. culture and history. You write how you grew up an insomniac in a household of insomniacs, <laughs> where each day began with a discussion of the night from the night before. How did you sleep? <laughs> what time did you wake? Sleeping pill or no? As an adult, I was surprised that not everyone wanted to engage in lengthy conversations about the duration and quality of their sleep. For some people, sleep was no big deal, and this seemed strange to me. And you say that you envied your friends who could take sound sleep for granted, but at the time noticed that they didn't seem to enjoy sleep the way I did. How do you enjoy sleep? To you, what is a good night's sleep? (laughs) Well, um, a good night's sleep is a long night's sleep. Um, It's deep sleep punctuated by less deep sleep and during the less deep sleep I'm very aware that I'm sleeping and aware that I'm enjoying it um, as you would be aware that you've you know just drunk a good glass of wine um, I think it's worth saying that people have come around to um, valuing sleep in the past few years you know there's so much more discussion of sleep and how important it is um, and how fundamental it is to our well-being. But when I was growing up, my family was a bit of a, they were, you know, outliers in this kind of preoccupation with sleep. Why in the last few years, why do you think suddenly people have become more interested in a good night's sleep? Well, you know, I think that the current craze for sleep and, you know, sort of self-help um, books about sleep and, um, and discussion of, of how important sleep is, is driven in, in really important ways by digital life. You know, we, we don't sleep as much. Um, we hear that a lot. And I think it's true. We don't sleep as much and we don't sleep as well because we spend so much time not only in front of screens, but also interacting. You know, when we're on our phone, when we're on our uh, computers, we're often in dialogue, we're interacting, we're responding. And so a state in which we're quiescent, still and solitary is alien, increasingly alien. So I think that that's really gotten people focused on what sleep means, what the importance of sleep is, um, mostly in individual ways, but you know, increasingly in terms of our collective life and in, in terms of our communal life. What is the value of sleep? 
You write about growing up in San Francisco in the 1960s and your parents' concerns over what we now call wellness extended, however, far beyond our home. During the 1970s, they became anti-nuclear activists and conversation our uh, house turned to apocalypse as often as it did to sleep. And you point out that your dad was a, uh, is a doctor and an early member of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Do you think those grim realities contributed to the lack of sleep you or your parents experienced with insomnia? Because due to the hellish nature and content of the show, I often <laughs> lose sleep considering what I learned from our guests. Is insomnia simply an outcome of the grim realities of our times? Well, yeah. I mean, the book itself is about the troubled sleep of soldiers and veterans um, who are subject to war trauma. And I think that, you know... <laughs> Um, I was not subject to war trauma, but I was subject in casual conversation with my parents and in watching their um, political work, I was subject to knowledge about the realities of war that a lot of teenagers don't have, you know, so my dad would share with me photographs of um, victims of the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, photographs that he um, uh, lectured about in his role as an anti-nuclear doctor. Um, so those kinds of things, those conversations with my parents, those images made an impression on me. And I think, yes, they contributed to my, um, my insomnia, my sense that I was living in a world that was doomed. So do you think our growing concern, the public's growing concern over sleep, is an indicator of rising <laughs> grimness of yes. our times? Yes, I do. I think that um, increasingly we share a sense that our world is doomed. Um, that wasn't the case. Uh, well, you know, that maybe it was the case also during the, um, nuclear, the height of the nuclear arms race. Um, but I think, again, we are facing... Um, collective planetary extinction. And more and more of us are thinking about that and talking about that. And yes, I do. I think, um, I think that you're right. And I think the book is sort of um, powered in some sense by this um, current moment in which sleep is tied in both positive and negative ways to this recognition that we're in a lot of trouble. You recount a little-known, seldom-recalled episode that caught and held your attention, serving as a gateway into one of Sleep's many histories. In the spring of 1971, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, a group that's been featured on our show, you talked to Barry Romo, who's been on our show a couple of times, fought the courts for the right to sleep on the National Mall as part of their week-long demonstration, Operation Dewey Canyon 3. When the courts denied their petition, veterans decided to break the law by sleeping anyway, turning good rest into a form of dissent. Hundreds of veterans fell asleep, wondering whether or not they would be arrested by daybreak. Sleep as a form of dissent. Why is sleep apparently a form of dissent that concerns those in power to the degree that it seems to when considering their prohibitions of protesters sleeping in public spaces? That seems like that's the one thing that really irks the state. So why sleep? Why does that seem to bother law enforcement and the state so much? Well, I think one really pedestrian reason is because you can't have a mass protest, a demonstration that lasts for longer than a single afternoon without a group of people sleeping in public space. Um, 
So uh, in the case of the Vietnam veterans against the war, they were planning this big week-long demonstration in Washington, and they were notified two days before it was about to begin that they wouldn't be allowed to sleep on the National Mall. And they argued in court that, like, look, we have veterans coming from all over the country, thousands of veterans who have no other place to stay. So I think if you want to organize uh, uh, ongoing demonstration, which are the most effective demonstrations, you need to sleep in public. That's one reason the state clamps down on public sleep. But I think the, one of the less obvious reasons is that when you sleep in public, you put the needs of the body on display. And you also put the power of the community to tend to the needs of the body on display. So I think about the VVAW encampments in relation to other, uh, the encampment of the Vietnam veterans against the war, in relation to other encampments by civil rights demonstrators at Resurrection City, um, by the American Indian Movement at Alcatraz, by occupiers um, at Occupy Wall Street. And in each case, what these demonstrators are doing are living together in public, and sleep is part of that. It's one of the daily routines that they're engaging in in a fairly performative way. They're feeding each other. They're planning together. They're sheltering one another, and they're sleeping together. And I think that that's also a threat to authorities, that that's a threat to state institutions um, because it's a public display of people creating community. And it makes clear that what communities do is take care of one another, right? Um, so this past week in Las Vegas, um, a law was passed by the city, a, a ban was passed on homeless uh, encampments. So it's now illegal in Las Vegas for um, people without homes to sleep on the street if they have a bed in a shelter. So again, issues of shelter are deeply tied to issues of sleep and what the community is um, bound to provide. And another occupation, I would say, would be Standing Rock. And like Occupy, it seems yes. that both of those uh, events, both of those actions, not only led to a community spirit, but led to people networking together. And then when they went home, they continued that networking. And the work of yes. Occupy and people who were in Occupy and Standing Rock continues to this day. Is that the real threat, that this is can be a network? And then those people can go out into the world and take the message that they network together for days if not weeks. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing this, you know, we saw this in early October in London when um, XR um, was encamped at, um, at Trafalgar Square. You know, the Metropolitan Police in London swept in at night and dismantled their encampment and they had to find another place to sleep. So yes, I think that this is absolutely instrumental to not only protesting, but as you're suggesting, to movement building, to creating networks, to creating forms of political intimacy that will carry on. You write about PTSD, obviously, throughout your book, and you write that during World War II, psychiatrists who treated soldiers suffering from war trauma observed how frequently their patients experienced disturbed sleep. Roy Grinker and John Spiegel, who treated U.S. soldiers in North Africa, reported, quote, either our patients have difficulty going to sleep because of hypnogogic 
hallucinations, Mm -hmm. repetitive of battle experiences, or they are awakened from sleep by severe catastrophic nightmares. And you add the disturbed sleep of Vietnam-era veterans provided an important source for the development of the diagnostic category post-traumatic stress disorder first modified or first codified in uh, 1980, which lists difficulty falling or staying asleep and recurrent nightmares as two of the uh, syndrome symptoms. Why do we call post-war trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. What does post-war trauma reveal that post-traumatic stress disorder may not? Post-war trauma, you know, specifies war as the source of that trauma. Post-traumatic stress disorder generalizes those symptoms. And the diagnostic, when it was uh, first published in 1980, made that specific by saying um, anyone who has had an extreme experience um, outside of, ordin- of ordinary experience can, ex- can uh, uh, develop post-PTSD. So it um, can be considered a way of broadening the... Um, symptoms of war trauma to extend to a lot of people who have suffered a lot of different kinds of trauma, all of which may also cause the same symptoms, but it tends to blur the connection between traumatic symptoms and war. And prior to that, so like, I think it was, it was referred yeah. to as shell shock, correct? Yeah. So um, for a long time, um, disturbed sleep, um, insomnia, nightmares, um, and later in the 20th century, flashbacks have been associated with soldiers and veterans. Um, we tend to think that what we call those symptoms changes in each war. So we go from shell shock to combat fatigue to um, PTSD. But in fact, the symptoms themselves change. And that's something that I talk about a lot in the book is how um, the symptoms that Vietnam veterans exhibited are not the same as the symptoms that World War II veterans exhibited. And so what is it that transforms not only what we call trauma, but how trauma manifests itself from one era to the next? And what I want to say is that activist veterans of the Vietnam era members of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War in particular, had an enormous um, hand in determining what the symptoms, Vietnam-era traumatic symptoms were. And those symptoms then bled out into the psychiatric profession. So is there a link between the symptoms and potentially uh, increased brutality in war due to improved war war-making technology? That's interesting, but that's not my angle on it. I'm more interested in um, the way that the symptoms were tailored by um, veterans themselves to be more um, conducive to political organizing. So, for example, um, detachment, while not totally new to the literature of uh, post-war trauma, detachment is something that Vietnam veterans really emphasized in their um, work with uh, uh, post-war trauma and anti-war politics. 
So they really stressed an initial detachment that the veteran would return home and for a year, possibly 18 months, not experience traumatic symptoms. So you can think about this detachment as giving the veteran time and space to reflect on his own symptoms as they begin to emerge. So uh, Vietnam, uh, anti-war Vietnam veterans gathered in groups called rap sessions um, as early as 1970 to discuss the symptoms that they were experiencing as they emerged. And so you can think about this emphasis on detachment as instrumental to them saying, look, we have the ability and the right to interpret, analyze, reflect on, and mobilize our own traumatic symptoms as opposed to being analyzed by psychiatrists. I find that so fascinating that in trying to cure post-war trauma, it seems like the studying by the military led to veterans who would become anti-war. Are anti-war veterans the result of the military studying post-war trauma? Um, No, I don't think so. But I think that in order to mobilize against war, they had to um, loosen themselves from the grip and the authority, the institutional authority of military psychiatry. And so the complexity of what veterans did um, in relation to war trauma was that they didn't abandon the um, definitions that they had been handed by the psychiatric institution but they turned those symptoms that were already uh, well-known and codified, they adapted them and they turned them to new uses. So, you know, the complex historical transition, um, I don't think that it was psychiatry that caused them to be anti-war. I think it was their experience of the war that caused them to be anti-war. And then they were like, okay, so how do we take these popular these now popular understandings of what war does to the mind and the personality and turn them to radical uses. That's really fascinating because I I really enjoyed your book, Franny. You write, drug-induced sleep served as a routine form of treatment and a means of inquiry and experimentation, inducing deep and twilight sleep in clinical settings. Military psychiatrists uh, studied the effects of war violence on the soldier's mind. In the process, they redefined the nature of memory in ways that would have far-reaching influence and pioneered techniques of brainwashing that would weaponize both memory and sleep. I knew the military wasn't going to get out of the scot-free. So <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think was their emphasis? Was their emphasis on the cure and they just stumbled on it as a weapon? Or what was their emphasis? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I think it varied from, you know, uh, clinician to clinician. I think that some um, were more... Uh, somewhat more um, instrumental in their approach to their soldier subject. But I think that, um, I think that there was generally um, an urge to use sleep to help traumatized veterans and soldiers during the war, World War II, feel better. Um, And so sometimes they would put them in, uh, uh, clinicians would put uh, traumatized soldiers into deep sleep states, what they called clinical comas, so that they could get some rest and feel rejuvenated and go back to fighting usually. Um, And then I write at length about um, 
experiments in twilight sleep in which uh, uh, a psychiatrist would inject a traumatized soldier with barbiturates. And while he was half awake, half asleep, um, conduct a rapid course of talk therapy that would help uh, him to relive his traumatic experience and hopefully be cured by that reliving. But I think in the process of conducting these experiments, um, as is often the case, psychiatrists started to find out really interesting things. For example, they found out that it tended to work as well to um, make up a story that didn't in fact happen to the individual soldier as it did to have um, him relive his actual experience. So they were like, oh, it doesn't really matter whether he remembers something that actually happened or he just remembers something that is kind of a generic war experience that we tell him happened. And I think that that was, you know, given um, their line of work, a source of interest and intrigue and one basis for later uh, coercive experiments in brainwashing um, that you could tell someone something that didn't happen and have it become fundamental to their sense of self. Wow. So uh, I'm going to put some of these questions aside that I have right now about uh, how the impact on capitalism and counterculture, because I want to continue the conversation on the Vietnam veterans against the war, because you write how the Vietnam veterans against the war ambivalence toward the prospect of recovery. Even if individual healing was hoped for, their activist program conveyed the difficulty of leaving the past behind in public testimony and performative direct action. Veterans demonstrated the ongoing power of the past to disrupt the present. In the process, they developed Mm -hmm. and refined a particular account of the way that traumatic memories recur, a contemporary understanding of how trauma works lying dormant for a time and then flaring up suddenly with unpredictable consequences is itself the fruit of veterans anti-war organizing, which employed the persistence of traumatic symptoms to make the case against the war as the war dragged on. Is remembering the traumatic instances experienced in war an anti-war political act while simultaneously being what veterans want to forget does veterans uh, vietnam veterans against the war or anyone who is a veteran opposed to war depend on soldiers remembering the worst moments of their time at war to not moving beyond the traumatic events because the thing that just gets me is how can you do these two things simultaneously how does the vvaw suggest you know veterans deal with what would seem to be conflicting forces yes um the conflicting forces being on the one hand um, trying to remedy the situation and on the other, continuing to suffer from it. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, in the case of the VVAW, the thing that they suffered from um, was not, you know, uh, violent experiences of war writ large. It was war crimes that they had committed. So those were the memories that they sought to excavate and go public with because they felt that the American public was simply not aware or not responding to what they were aware of, knowledge of um, the atrocities that U.S. soldiers were committing against the people of Vietnam. And so um, the things that they publicized were things that they had done. Uh, so it wasn't um, the generic, you know, I was traumatized by seeing my friend killed. It was, I was traumatized by the people I brutally murdered, etc. 
So that um, that gives what they um, that gives their trauma a specific quality, and I think one that makes recovery more difficult. Um, and oftentimes they seem to describe what they were doing as trying to um, ensure that people were educated so that the war would stop, but their own recovery was something that they were writing off, something that they, um, that they could not expect because of their criminal guilt. Wow. Uh, you, uh, our guest right now is Franny Noodleman. She is the author of Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. She is also the author of John Brown's Body, Slavery, Violence, and the Culture of War, and co-editor with Sarah Blair and Joseph Enton of Remaking Reality, U.S. Documentary Culture After 1945. You write the Vietnam Veterans Against the War's legal arguments over the right of veterans to sleep on the National Mall continue to reverberate, invoked in the early 1980s to defend the tent cities that were erected to protect protest homelessness and more recently by New York New York's former mayor Michael Bloomberg when he cleared occupiers from Zuccotti Park sound a lot like the US district judge George Hart when he explained the first amendment protects speech. It does not protect the use of tents and sleeping bags to take over public space. Alan Levine, who is counsel for the occupiers, took the opposing point of view when he argued to the contrary that occupiers were sleeping in the park for expressive purposes. Why is sleeping in the park free speech? Isn't it just loitering and vagrancy? <laughs> well, two, two reasons that it's free speech. Um, uh, According to the VVAW, and I think according to a lot of activists since then who have made that argument, um, public sleep is free speech first because it's a performance. So what the Vietnam Veterans Against the War said they were doing on the National Mall was simulating an, an encampment in Vietnam. So they said, you know, part of what we're doing here is, is guerrilla theater. And that is a kind of expression. But the more, I think the more consequential and significant argument was that the, uh, the First Amendment guarantees not only free speech, but also the right to peaceably assemble. So very clearly, um, to gather in a peaceful demonstration is guaranteed by the First Amendment. We usually think about the free speech part, but don't um, remember that free speech was tied to peaceable assembly, which gets back to the point that you made earlier about networking, right? Like when people um, come together to talk together, to speak together, um, uh, it's about speech and speech is also about assembly. This reminded me of a conversation that we just recently had, because you write about aimless time and unhurried time, which yeah. I find absolutely fascinating. We recently spoke with Bree Busk, who was talking to us from Santiago, Chile, in the site of recent massive protests. Bree explained that when protesters went on a general strike, people came out of their homes and into the streets and started sharing their experiences under neoliberalism and realized they yeah. were not alone, that everyone had the yeah. same feelings of precarity and loneliness and depression. Bree explained that with no work to go to, people started engaging with each other and started to create people's assemblies like those of Occupy and that 
the kind that exists in Brazil today, which were part of the early 2000s World Social Forum. So is the most yeah. rebellious aspect of sleep then that unhurried, even aimless time? Is that the greatest threat to capitalism when they see these kind of protests? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, extended non-productive time or not, not productive in the narrow sense. Um, and also, I think conversation is absolutely central. Um, so the idea that sleep is a form of free speech um, leads us to ask, well, what is it that um, happens when people camp together in order to sleep together um, and are not in a rush? Well, they talk about exactly the kinds of things that you're mentioning. Um, you know, they establish forms of solidarity through conversation. And one of the amazing things that, that happened um, with the Vietnam veterans who were uh, camped on the mall is that when the Supreme Court said that they would not be allowed to sleep on the mall, ruling that they could stay on the mall, but that they couldn't fall asleep there, the uh, 800 veterans who had already been camping there for three days caucused by state and debated whether they should um, break the law and fall asleep or obey the law and stay awake. And then they voted. And uh, Jan, uh, Jan Berry, who was the founding president of the VVAW, said it was that conversation um, that amazed him. Um, 800 veterans talking about whether to sleep or stay awake. And he said that was democracy in action. So in a lot of different ways, sleep is tied to talking, talking with one another. And I think that that's, you know, really important to organizing, but also, as you're suggesting, to discovering things that we're experiencing in common. So do you think it's more than a democratic act than it is an anti-capitalist act? Well, um, I think the two things are, are tied. Um, so that there's, um, you know, democracy in the broad sense, I think, is tied to forms of debate and um, even consensus that cut against the grain of late capitalism. You write that your account of veterans' activism is positive, even celebratory, because you admire their accomplishments and because their contribution to the field of anti-war protest has not been fully recognized or closely studied. That is very odd. In your opinion, why hasn't it? Is there something about veterans being anti-war that is an obstacle to the public knowing about the contributions of veterans in peace movements, which are significant, as you point out in your book? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is odd, um, and um, so much has it, it, so much has been written about the movement to end the war in Vietnam, and also a lot has been written about um, the VVAW and other um, anti-war veterans organizations. But in terms of the re really specific material nature of what the anti-war veterans did, the modes of organizing that they used, which I think were extraordinarily innovative, very little has been done. So when we think of protest forms, we tend to think of, um, 
of, you know, big marches or um, Abby Hoffman throwing, you know, kind of the yippee uh, political theater, throwing money on the New York Stock Exchange. But the kinds of activism that the VVAW pioneered, the forms of activism like public testimony, public sleep, the rap sessions that they held um, early on, these have not been discussed in depth. And so I think that um, I want to restore their contribution to anti-war organizing, which is always, it's always, you know, um, they're always cross-pollinating with other groups. You know, they borrowed from second wave feminists and other people borrowed from them. But I still think that, um, that they have been understudied in these sort of materialist ways. And I think that's in part because um, the therapists, the radical therapists that they worked with that went on to establish the PTSD diagnosis are given a lot of um, attention and a lot of credit for things that the veterans themselves actually thought through for themselves. So I think that there's a, a kind of slippage that we see by 1980 where um, the, the histories tend to attribute a lot to uh, therapists that actually needs to be attributed to veterans. I asked you earlier why there's been a change and an increased interest in sleep. You write, long neglected and even derided sleep is now in vogue. In the past, why was the value of sleep long neglected and even derided? Were we simply more content in the past and nobody was having any sleeping problems? No, I mean, I think that um, that uh, sleep, you know, we're, we're not the first generation to feel the pressure to work harder, to work more, to earn more, to buy more. And I think that um, in the post-war period, at least, sleep was seen as a waste of time and probably post-industrialization. It's like, why would you spend time sleeping when you could be working? And so there's been a steady decline across the course of, you know, a couple centuries in how long we sleep at night. So I think that um, that begs the question again about why we're now at this current moment compelled to think positively about sleep. But I think the deriding of sleep goes hand in hand with its um, seeming non-productivity. You write that in the book 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep, author Jonathan Crary suggests that our current interest in sleep is inseparable from the threat that late capitalism poses to it. He begins by describing military efforts to design a sleepless soldier who can remain awake for many days at a stretch without adverse effects and predicts that if these experiments succeed, the sleepless soldier will be a forerunner of the sleepless worker or consumer, which reminds me of how the Third Reich would give Previtin to all the women who were, and to everybody, they're prescribing mm -hmm. it to everybody during Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. This is incredibly frightening. What would life be like without sleep, even if the process doesn't cause any adverse effects? Oh, God, you know, it would be awful. It would be hell, right? <laughs> Thank you for um, plugging the show in there. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, we 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 actually can't give up on sleep um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, so I think that the um, the specter of you know a sleepless consumer, a sleepless worker, a sleep sleepless soldier is, is 
probably at this point not what we need to be focused on um, because those are those are you know not beyond the realm of possibility but um, there are lots of incursions on our sleep that are going to happen before then that we need to resist right um, and in my book I actually turn away from better known experiments in inducing sleeplessness um, the sleepless soldier, but more, um, more um, importantly, the use of sleep deprivation as a form of torture um, in recent American wars. Uh, and I, I look instead at experiments in inducing sleep and in producing sleep. So the story of sleep doesn't go in any single direction. It can be used in malicious ways to keep people awake and it can be used in malicious ways to put them to sleep. And I argue pretty strenuously that we need to look at the context, right? Sleep in a particular space at a particular moment, who are the institutional actors involved in managing and controlling it. But generally let's pay attention to who controls where we sleep, how we sleep and who we sleep with. You write, sleep is necessary for our collective survival. Sleep interrupts the homogenous time of late capitalism. During this pause or time of waiting, we are free to imagine a shared world whose fate is not terminal. Crary hopes that in sleep we will recover our ability to imagine a future that is radically different from our present, writing, the beginnings of a future without capitalism begins as dreams of sleep. Do we need dreams and sleep in order to have the transformative revolution we need to overcome the epidemic of depression and loneliness that so many of our guests have linked to late capitalism? Yes, I think so. I mean, I have not been able to let go of the idea um, which runs throughout uh, the culture of sleep that sleep is a site of creativity um, and that uh, that dreams are themselves potentially um, sources of better futures. But I would add to that that given some of the political challenges we face, we just need to be well-rested, right? That's the more, you know, basic thing is like to deal with some of the stuff that we're dealing with, we need to have the presence of mind and the sense of calm that a good night's sleep provides. And you write about sleep as a source of innovation and political struggle. If it can be a source of innovation and political struggle, then why do we view sleep as empty and the sleeper as passive? Well, I mean, because in some ways she she appears to be. Um, So I think that it's not that she that she's not passive, that someone's sleeping um, is resting, but at the same time, um, sleep, you know, I just think again that there's a multiplicity of meanings and uses of sleep, and that to see sleep as exclusively passive is a problem. Um, and uh, to experience sleep as kind of irrelevant, you know, which I think is what we've tended to do. Well, I'm not doing anything during that time. So it's not important is a mistake. So again, it really depends on where, you know, what the context is, who's sleeping and where. Um, And I just really wanted to draw people's attention to the fact that your sleep is, has historically been employed in different ways. 
And you make this great point about <clears throat> counterculture that I want to stress. You write in the rhetoric of post-war social movements, the language of sleep and awakening signifies ignorance and revelation and anguish and joy, apathy and radicalization. Then you add that you anchor this language in World War II era sleep experiments as the study of war-torn soldiers provided dramatic evidence of the pliability of the mind and one point of origin for subsequent explorations of consciousness raising. The political counterculture dwelt on the question of who defined and controlled the individual mind, often twinning the subject's power to determine her own point of view and the prospect of collective liberation. Is sleep then a site of counterculture, no matter who the person sleeping is, no matter how much they may conform to society otherwise? No, I don't think that it always will be or is, but I do think that, you know, the book takes the counterculture very seriously um, and that's, my, you know, my tendency as a scholar is to think that the politics of consciousness is really important. And so I try to draw the genealogy of sorts from the um, uh, experiments in military psychiatry that were conducted during World War II, which assumed that the mind could be radically unmade and remade by, um, by a clinician to the brainwashing experiments of the Cold War, which were, again, intent on finding effective ways to unmake belief, unmake personality, and then remake them um, in the image of Cold War ideology, to the counterculture, which tried to take that same belief that the mind and personality could be deconstructed and reconstructed in a positive direction using some of the same technologies, right? Using drugs. Um, using intimate conversation, using amplified music to transform consciousness, but in the direction of um, rehabilitating the society rather than reprogramming the individual. So that's the kind of relevance of the counterculture to this history. And sleep was just one of the ways that activists experimented with placing consciousness front and center in their activist demonstrations, right? So I write about uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's bed in, and again, ask why, why the bed, why sleep? Why was that the place that they wanted to uh, perform this anti-war spectacle? Which is fascinating. You also write that current debates over, this is probably going to annoy people on the far right who want to support the troops. You write current debates over trigger warnings in the university classroom, for example, rely on the construction of the flashback that veterans help to bring into the diagnostic realm. National Affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, Jeet Heer, describes the Vietnam Veterans Against the War rap sessions as the embryonic safe space where the concept of PTSD emerged and rightly observes that the current popularity of trigger warnings and safe spaces on college campuses indicates the expanded reach of PTSD in our society, as well as the lasting influence of the anti-war movement. So our current college debates that the right is so indignant about the result of actions of the veterans and soldiers, they recognize with their support the troop car magnets and bumper stickers. Because I think if you told a Fox News commentator who is complaining about trigger warnings or safe spaces, that those all come from the anti-war work of veterans who have opposed yeah. who fought uh, post-war trauma that these are all caused by militaries fighting wars you'd be shouted down so are veterans responsible for safe spaces and trigger warnings um yeah vietnam veterans um 
the very notion that you can be triggered um, is essentially a f- belief in, a, in the flashback, which is the waking, the intense waking recollection of traumatic experience. There were no flashbacks um, before the Vietnam War. I mean, there were flashbacks. They used flashbacks in movies, and they called them that. Um, and it was a term that was popular in the drug subculture, but, uh, but it became associated with um, traumatic experience during the uh, Vietnam War, and anti-war veterans, I argue, were largely responsible for that. Not solely responsible, but largely responsible. So, yes, the trigger, what we call now triggering, is essentially something that produces a flashback. Um, and the very notion that you can be going about your business and suddenly be swamped, overwhelmed by a traumatic memory that obliterates the present and puts you wholly back in this um, terrible past experience is a historically specific notion that we inherit from the Vietnam era. And the public activism of Vietnam veterans routinely performed the experience of flashing back for an American public. And which is fascinating. You write about uh, slow violence that we are all experiencing and the uh, possible reaction or response to it with uh, slow activism, the slow violence of the um, the forever war that we're all experiencing and at the same time mm-hmm. the uh, response of slow activism and that's persistent activism as, and you, as you point out when people are together in a space where they sleep together, that can be the creation of that slow activism that we need in response to the slow violence that we're experiencing today. I've got one last question for you, Franny. Uh, let's see. We've been speaking to Franny Noodleman. She is author of Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. She is professor in the Department of English, Language, and Literature at Carleton University in Ottawa, where she teaches U.S. culture and history. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In that book, 24-7 by Jonathan Crary, he argues that sleep, as you write, he argues that sleep is under siege and mounts an impassioned defense of its value observing that sleep is the only regular activity that cannot be easily commodified in a world in which we produce, consume, and interact around the clock. He argues that sleep represents a formidable obstacle to the full realization of 24-7 capitalism. And let's be all very thankful that they haven't figured out how to put commercials into our dreams yet. So, Franny, my question for you, is sleep a threat to capitalism? Is it a commie plot? Um, uh, yes, it is a threat to capitalism, or at the very least, it's um, necessary uh, to finding alternatives uh, to capitalism and also to finding ways to effectively resist capitalism. Um, is it a commie plot? You don't really want me to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> Franny, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fascinating book. And when it, I know that you're going to have this come out again and there's going to be more information added when it comes out in paperback. I really want to have you back on the show to discuss this further because the examples oh, within the book are just fascinating. The discussion of John Lennon and Yoko Ono is absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for being on our show. And we look thank forward to having you. you back on in the future. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure. All right. Take care.
bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I like reading it like that. Bong-hitting journalism. Sounds good, right? Since 1996, this is hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is... What's keeping you up at night? <laughs> uh, what's keeping you up at night? At uh, don't get gross or verbose. Either of those two are no-nos on uh, the question from hell. What's keeping you up at night? We don't mean the direction up. Yeah, we mean don't be gross, being guys. awake. What is keeping you awake at night? Maybe something like that. And uh, what's this week's prize for the best answer to this week's question and from hell? the book we were just talking about, Franny Noodleman's Fighting Sleep. Leave your sponsor a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishowradio. When are you going to be posting this, Alex? Uh, I just posted. All right, sweet. Keep listening uh, throughout the week to hear all of our listeners' responses and tune in tomorrow to find, or tune in on Friday to find out who won. We hope to see you all at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, the cell office hours is a think and drink. Join us any, each and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from this here studio, which I will be drinking in in exactly three and a half minutes, I believe. We also hope you can join us at the same place on Wednesday, December 18th. For our annual This Is Hell holiday office party. Party. Do you not have an office but have co-workers? Then invite them to This Is Hell's annual holiday office party. Do you work at an office but not actually like everyone at work? Then invite the people you do like to the This Is Hell holiday office party Wednesday, December 18th. Are you a freelancer of some sort, a web designer or whatever, and you have people who you work with or corroborate with, but or collaborate with, corroborate, collaborate with, then make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Wednesday, December 18th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. It all starts around 6 p.m. and we'll run until they probably kick us out because... I won't have a radio show to do that weekend as I'll be done with the show for the week and preparing for a holiday. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thank you to Ronaldo Magaldi for working on This Week in Rotten History. Thanks to our guests, Franny Noodleman, author of Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind, and the U.S. Military, which is the prize in the question from hell this week. The question from hell this week is, uh, what's keeping you up at night? What's keeping you up at night? Also, thanks to Kianga Yamada-Taylor, author of Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership. That is just the most fascinating book because it undermines almost every racist thing I heard about African Americans when I was growing up. It dis- did, you know, undoes all of the myths that White racists have been telling you about black people forever. So if you want to give a book to somebody who's a blatant racist, who always says a whole bunch of racist things, give them this book, and at least Kiago will make money off of you giving a book to a blatant racist who will never likely read it. This week's Hangover Cure is crumpets. Crumpets. I know. Crumpets. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing again, Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. That demon. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 